Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixdown. Cranking up. Right here on 3CR. Welcome to another edition of Communication Mixdown. I'm Jen Martin. So when was the last time you had a serious talk about death and dying? Maybe you've never had a serious conversation about it. Well, you're not alone. Molly Carlisle wants to change all of that. She's a palliative care activist and an end-of-life counsellor and educator. She calls herself the death talker. And she says communicating about death should be a topic that's on everyone's list of important things to do to make for a better, more meaningful, fully aware life. Here she explains why with Communication Mixdown's John Langer. Well, welcome to Communication Mixdown, Molly Carlisle. I have to say to confess to start with, I'm a bit overwhelmed and I feel a bit of trepidation talking to you about death and how to communicate about death and dying. But look, I guess this is how probably everyone feels about this issue. So I want to jump right into it. You decided to call yourself the death talker, and I wanted to know why. Because a lot of people whisper about death, and it, it's always a conversation that happens behind closed doors or behind someone's hand. And my view has always been if we talk about it openly and honestly, we can debunk a whole lot of myths, give people information, and by giving them information, empower them to be back in control. So when you talk about death, you basically you present stuff to forums and seminars and groups and those kinds of things. What are the sorts of questions that ordinary folks like me would be asking over and over again? What Are there certain things that come up in talking about death, and particularly because we're a show about communication, mm. do they focus, well, some of these questions, do they focus on communication? I think the big thing, John, is that people are frightened of saying or doing the wrong thing. So generally the things people say to me is, what shouldn't I do? What shouldn't I say? Instead of focusing on the fact that if they speak from the heart, they'll never make a mistake. But often people just need the permission to do that. And it's that old thing, isn't it? That someone that we consider is qualified in a certain area, we trust their view. And that's why for a lot of uh, a lot of ordinary people, they take what a doctor says as being gospel and never question it and don't know that they have the right to ask for more information or to say, you know what, um, that may be the path some people take, but that doesn't align with how I do things. So just 
giving people permission <laughs> to to yeah. be honest is often enough. If the, because what's the worst thing that can happen? And you know, I say that to people all the time. If you say the wrong thing, what you think is the wrong thing, or you get a reaction you hadn't anticipated, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the wrong thing. It may mean you've actually given that person permission to express an emotion they've been hanging on to for a long time. So if someone says something to you and you respond in a certain way and they burst into tears, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It may be that they've needed to do that for ages and you've allowed them to. So we have to reframe a little bit what we understand to be right and wrong, uh, good and bad. And if we can let go of that, then people feel far more comfortable to relax into the conversation. So that's often what they ask, you know, what should I say? What should I do? That sort of stuff. As you're talking, this is the very things I'm thinking about. It's it's almost like you're not sure what the language to use, you know, mm. you, the, the phrases, you know, it's it's almost like a, a language or a, a what, you know, because I'm thinking about the communication side of stuff, you know, we don't know exactly what to say, when to say it, how to say it, mm. how to, you know, how to put your body together when you're saying the things that yeah. you're saying. And I mean, uh, you know, there obviously are rules, but as you said right at the very beginning, there's something that are, are hidden or at least not spoken openly or, you know, talked about openly? Well, to be honest, I would say the rules are what makes it safe for the person to have the conversation. So if if it's a terminally ill person wanting to talk about their their death with someone close to them, it should be that person that defines the rules, not the rest of us. So there's no one size fits all here. And that's why, you know, I'm forever saying to people, don't use euphemisms, name it. Like you, when you're, when you're dead, you're dead. Before you're dead, you're living. And then you're in the process of dying. You're not passing away or over or under or any of that. But we use that language because we think it somehow softens the conversation. But for people mm. on the receiving end, it can o- often be an invalidation of how they're feeling. Oh, yeah, you won't even say the word. How can I talk to you about what's going on for me right now? Um, and, of course, I put that in a cultural context because in in certain cultural environments, that's not that's not how... Um, people do it, but within your own culture, you know what the you know what the the rules are around that. And you know, Aboriginal people, for example, talk about going home to country. They don't say death and dying, but for Anglo Celtic Australians, the reason we don't say it is because we're scared of saying it. And so, my view is that we need to challenge ourselves. And let go of our own fears about this stuff in order to hold someone else in a space that allows them to say what they're thinking and feeling. This the the euphemisms are is very very pertinent. I think mm. it, it does the past someone's past yeah. someone's pa- passed away as opposed to died kick the bucket. I yeah. mean, there's a whole lot of 
phrases and terms that you that are used very popularly and, and currently is the, the idea that the person has passed instead yeah, of died. Yeah, I know. Past. I mean, what does that mean? It's sort of like sounds that's like what you do in a car <laughs> or or an exam. Yeah. <laughs> well, the other one that that always really frustrates me is when someone, a well-meaning person, comes up and says, oh, "I'm so sorry you lost your mum." Well, no, I didn't lose my mum because I was not looking after her properly. She died, and when you think about it, for people. Um, for whom English isn't their first language, or for children, and you say you lost someone, they take that literally. And they can also take it on as being um, a blame thing. So there's a whole lot of guilt wrapped up in, yes, I did lose my mother. I wasn't able to keep her alive. It's my fault, you know. So... Again, you know, you don't have to have a master's in grief and bereavement to know that the language you normally use during any day discussing any topic is the same language you should use discussing death and grief because that's your language and if you if you veer off that road, then it becomes contrived. And when that happens the person who you're communicating with will switch off or, worse still, take some of the things you're saying as a personal criticism or a reflection on what they did or didn't do. Really, Molly, there's so many things that I'd like to add, you know, talk to you more about. I'm just in my head thinking about this stuff as the, the funeral industry, and they, they, mm. t- they tend to use those terms a lot, that, that, those yeah. very softening kinds of terms. Do you have to in a way, talk to them about these sorts of things as well? Or can you? Or how does that work? Well, the funeral industry is a, as as our illustrious leader often says, a broad church. Um, there are there are funeral uh, companies that are owned by a single provider that have very strict rules around them and it doesn't matter whether you go to one of them or another, the rules will be the same and the language will be the same. But the good thing about living in the 21st century is that there's lots of independent funeral companies starting to come onto the market and um, these people are approaching after-death care very differently and and that includes the language that they use. Mm-hmm. Um so again, I would go back to if if you acquaint yourself well to what it, the normal language of the person you're communicating with, and you stick to that, you won't make a mistake. Mm. It's and you can't soften it. Like it doesn't matter what words you use. If my partner's died, anything you say is not going to make me feel better. I'm going to feel like crap because mm-hmm. my partner has just died. I need you to say to me, I can't imagine how awful you must be feeling. Is there something I can do to help? Mm-hmm. That's all I want. I want to be held. I don't want to be given advice. I don't want to be compared to other people. I don't want someone saying to me, oh, well, when my partner died, I did this, that and the other thing. I don't want to know about it. That was your partner, your relationship. Mine is very different. Mm-hmm. 
Let's turn to something a little bit different, but sure. still related. You're a very strong advocate, as I've read, in, about incorporating and using arts, the arts in the dying process, the visual arts performance. How did this pro- approach come about? Well, a long time ago, um, when I was, I'd been doing a lot of presentations in mainstream conferences, you know, for he- other health professionals, because that's that's my background, um, and. The more I did that and the more I worked clinically, the more I realised that, you know, sometimes you've got to put your hands up and go, this is a fight I can't win and look to where where there is an opportunity to make a real difference. And and that's when I cast my eyes beyond the, the um, you know, the healthcare setting out into the community. Now, if you go out there and say to people, come round and let's talk about death, um, most people go, seriously? No, I'm going to the footy on Saturday, you know. However, you can do a whole lot with arts that you can't do in a one-on-one conversation. And the more I started to explore that idea, the more I thought, you know, there's an application here for getting people to have conversations. Can, can you give us a, just a very brief illustration that, that would just give people a sense of how this would work? Is it to do with sitting down with people and letting them, I mean, I'm, this is very crude, but drawing stuff or? I yeah, for, for, for some people that one-on-one element is really important. The best example I can give you is I approached Alan Hopgood, who's a very you know, well-known Melbourne treasure um, Mm -hmm. and said to him, let's do a play about death and dying. Let's write a play. So we worked together and we wrote a play called Four Funerals in One Day. We performed it first in about 2010 and it's since been performed all over the country to two sellout seasons in Canada by by another um, theatre troupe. Uh, and, And it's a story. It's a story about about an old guy who's dying, who's really angry, who has a really great relationship with a young nurse and begins to feel that his story matters. Mm -hmm. So we don't lecture people. It's funny. It's sad. And the whole aim is that people walk away entertained and with some information they may not have otherwise known. Another area that you mention and you you stress is the communication with your doctor. You've already mentioned this. Mm. Tell us a bit a bit about this. What what what's this all about? I guess that, look, it's like this in in any career. Um, you know, I don't know about you, John, but when my son starts talking about IT, he may as well be speaking Martian. Like I just so don't get it. And for most ordinary people, medical speak is exactly the same. Like we use these old Latin words that explain diseases and illness trajectories and prognoses and um, and treatment options that aren't really options because we're not actually given a choice. Um, and so the, the person sitting on the other side goes, I didn't understand any of that, but I did hear chemo, so I guess you know, the outcome's going to be okay. So pick up a little bit of the conversation. And I think as health professionals, we need to um, take on a lot of responsibility for the fact that we do that as a defence mechanism because for a lot of us, we feel just as uncomfortable having those conversations. 
You know, it's very hard to say to someone, look, we've tried surgery, we've tried chemo, we've tried radiotherapy, and there's nothing left to try. So what are we going to do to help you live the best you can the way you want to for as long as you've got left? That conversation is a hard one to have. So we talk about, oh, well, we have some clinical trials and, you know, it may not impact on your prognosis, but it may impact on your symptom load. And, you know, what does that mean to anybody? So you're, you, in a sense, you're saying to people when they go to their doctors, explain this to me in my yes, language. exactly. And have a list of the questions you want to ask. And don't move to the next question till you get an answer that you understand that that makes sense for you. That's really hard for people to do, isn't it? Yeah, because it is. the, the medical profession, of course, is very highly esteemed, godlike and so mm, on, especially mm. surgeons. Yep. So you must run into a fair a bit of flack yourself. Oh, look, I cop flack all the time, John, <laughs> but to be honest, I've got to the point in my life where I've I've it took me a long time to get there, but I've got to the point where I realise everybody's not going to love me. There will be people who don't like me just because of how I look. So I take that as a given. And if if someone falls into that category, I just go, okay, that that's fine. That's your choice. But it's, it's the 10, 10 and 80. So 10% are going to love you. 10% won't be able to stand you. But the 80 in the middle are the swinging voters and they're the people you have the opportunity to influence. So that's where I focus my energy. Really interesting. Something else, and again, I'm just reading about what you've done. An area that you've looked at is explaining death and dying to children. Mm. Now, we don't have much time, but Tell us a bit about that because, again, that's a very uh, – to me, it's a very fraught area. It's, it's, it's obviously a very difficult thing. What, what did you come up with there? So the whole thing about children is they ask questions a lot because they want to hear the answer. They don't want to hear a thesis. They want a succinct, honest answer. So if a four-year-old says, what happens when you die, they don't want a great long explanation. What they want to hear or what they need to hear is your heart stops beating, your lungs stop breathing, your brain stops working, and that's what dead is. Mm-hmm. Mm. And usually at that point, they'll go, oh, beauty, thanks, mum, and they'll be out the back door back doing what they were doing before. Um, the mistake people make is they think they protect their children by withholding that information. But Given the years I've worked in this area and the number of young children I've worked with who felt they were somehow to blame for the death of someone in their family um, because of the language used, because of overhearing whispered conversations in hallways and all of that, kids have got really healthy imaginations. So we need to give them the information they require to be informed and supported And they need to see us grieving when we are. Because I'll just quickly tell you, once I I was um, supporting this six-year-old who thought her mum didn't care that her three-year-old sister had died because she never saw her mum cry. But she never, she wasn't old enough to understand her mother had eight showers a day so that she could stand in the shower and cry. Now, you can see if you brought those two things together how all of a sudden the whole dynamic shifts. The child feels supported, the parent feels supported, and they both meet in their grief. 
And that's what we need to be encouraging. There's something coming up, and I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about this because that's part of the reason why we're talking together is uh, in August, early August, August the 8th, I understand, is something yep. called Dying to Know Day. Tell us about that. So Dying to Know Day started in 2013. It was an initiative of the Groundswell Project, who by their very name um, is a ground-up community not-for-profit organisation based in Sydney. Um I happened to to know the two founders and as soon as they said they were going to get some seed funding and try and get this up and running, I said, count me in. And so that first year, uh, there was about eight or nine events around the country. And at the time, I was working at the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Centre at the Austin and we had one of the first events in the country. And it it, it was amazing. Like we built a lounge room set in the foyer of the cancer centre and we invited people to sit in the chair and to talk about what, what mattered to them in their lives. And again, it was a case of, you know, people, well, you can't ask those questions in a cancer centre, but you know what? All of these people wanted to contribute um, because they didn't get to tell their stories in another, in another environment, so they wanted to share their experiences. And that's what Dying to Know Day is all about, giving people a vehicle to to have a conversation. You don't have to do it in a public area. You just have the conversation at home around the dinner table or talk to your, your parents or, you know, talk to your kids, talk to the next door neighbour. But just on that day, on August the 8th, do one thing. Even if you just post a post on Facebook because... Over time, those things all chip away at people's preconceived notions and the more comfortable we feel about having these conversations, the the more we can support each other, the better care people will get, the more people will be able to make choice about what their dying looks like and the better equipped carers and families will be to support the people that they love. There are community events all around yes. Australia, is yeah. that right? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. It's... It's only, well, what is it now, 17? It's, this is the fourth year. So it's gone gangbusters because people, people want to engage with it. You know, we think people don't want to talk about death and dying, but the, the real issue is no one gives them an opportunity. So if you create the opportunity, you won't have an issue getting people to have the conversation. Let's leave it there. It's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for being on Communication Mixdown. My pleasure, John. That was Molly Carlisle, and she's an award-winning death and grief specialist and a palliative care activist. Molly's book is called The Death Talker, and it's available online. And that special day coming up is called Dying to Know Day. It happens on August the 8th all around the country, and it's a day dedicated to communicating productively about death, dying, and bereavement. And all details are available on the Communication Mixdown website. So that's it for Communication Mixdown. We're here next Thursday. I'm Jen Martin, and helping me always behind the scenes very quietly is John Langer.